Truth Espresso, episode 85. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time should be labeled good. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, the host of Truth Espresso. Welcome, and if you're just tuning in because you saw Iron Man and Jesus like Iron Man, what kind of question is that? Well, this is a series of asking questions about who Jesus is, like your favorite or maybe your not-so-favorite superhero. And thank you for tuning in, so if you're just listening to this this one, I would highly recommend that you listen to the whole series. Find the previous episodes, is Jesus like, insert superhero here, and begin at the beginning and listen all the way through, because we're going chronologically through church history, we're going chronologically through different ideas about Jesus in history and comparing them to superheroes so we get a good illustration of what we're talking about, what to compare compare the truth to. And especially, I would suggest that you listen to the last two episodes of Truth Espresso, the ones about, is Jesus like Thor, part one and part two? Because the conflict that was going on there has some overlap with the conflict that's going on in this episode. But yet, I highly recommend you start with his Jesus like Superman and continue on from there and you'll get fully enlightened as to what Jesus is like and what Jesus is not like according to the scriptures and also according to the lens of history. And so for this episode, we're going to ask the question, is Jesus like Iron Man? Now, until a few years ago, with Marvel's reboot of their movies of the Avengers, perhaps you didn't follow Iron Man that much until Iron Man became a major part of the Marvel motion pictures about Avenger superhero movies. And unless you are a comic book aficionado subscribing to Iron Man comic books, perhaps you weren't too familiar with Iron Man, but now you are if you've watched the Marvel movies. And you're familiar with the name Tony Stark, the brains behind the Iron Man visage. So just who is Iron Man? Well, Iron Man was actually introduced into Marvel Comics, the print comics, in 1963. And the idea was that there was this billionaire named Tony Stark, this capitalist type of guy, lots of money, and during the early days of the Cold War, basically what we needed was some kind of hero who could use the money that he earned from being a good capitalist, a good billionaire, and use it for good to fight bad guys, perhaps to fight bad guys during the Cold War, or other types of bad guys that would show up for whatever reason. But of course, these bad guys had to be a match for the intellect and the wealth that Tony Stark would bring to the table. So billionaire Tony Stark, before he became Iron Man, was captured and he was forced by his captors to make a destructive weapon that they could use to take over the world. And in the process, unbeknownst to his captors, as Tony was creating the weapon that they thought he was making, he was actually creating a mechanized suit that he could wear and that he would use to escape his captors instead. And as he escaped and got back to his billionaire headquarters, his technological haven, he developed his mech suit further to use it for the goal to fight evil and to save the planet from bad guys like his captors who would try to take over the world. 
And so this sounds like a pretty cool superhero, a human being with some amazing powers that would be granted to him by the technology that he would invent. And so now let's ask the question, how is Jesus like Iron Man? As we understand Jesus through the questions that we asked before, is Jesus like Superman? Well, no, because Superman is only an alien and not human. Superman is if we shall say, divine in the minds of the docetist, but not human at all. And then we ask the question, is Jesus like Batman? Well, Batman is only human and not divine. And so, although Jesus is fully human and Jesus is fully divine, he can't be like either those superheroes who are not both. And then we ask the question, is Jesus like Ant-Man? Well, Jesus is not God putting on a mask, in a sense. Jesus is the unique Son of God, distinct from the Father, and so he's not like what the Sabaeans taught. And then we ask the question, is Jesus like Thor? For the Arians who believe that you could call Jesus divine, like a super-duper powerful ark-archangel created before everything else, and the most conceivably awesome creature that God the Father could ever create, but that he still had a beginning as the Son, and therefore less than the Father in essence, and with a different essence from the Father. And so, the Arians fully believed that Jesus was one person with two natures, but the divine nature they gave him was not the same, and the great and infinite and incomprehensible divine nature of the Father. But now let's ask the question, is Jesus like Iron Man? And if we give ourselves some grace in how we interpret what Iron Man is like to see some similarities, and then we can, of course, look at the differences as we always do. So how is Jesus like Iron Man? In what aspects can we say that they have some similarities? Well, Tony Stark is highly intelligent just like Batman was highly intelligent. And in the life of Jesus, we could see that Jesus was highly intelligent. He would answer questions that his accusers would think would be unanswerable questions, and yet Jesus would give them answers that would then shut down further questions. And even as a 12-year-old, as we see in the Gospel of John, the doctors of the law marveled at Jesus' knowledge of the law, even though he was only 12 years old. And now what about something else? Tony Stark is incredibly wealthy, and he uses his wealth in a humble way to fight crime. Think of that aspect like we talked about with Batman. Batman is incredibly intelligent and wealthy, and yet Batman humbly used his wealth to fight crime with gadgets and so on. So there's a lot of similarity there between Bruce Wayne and Tony Stark in that they're smart billionaires. And we see that Jesus was incredibly wealthy as being the divine Son of God. Uh, We see in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the Apostle Paul said, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And so Jesus humbled himself. The Son humbled himself at the incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth. And he gave up his wealth for the sake of making us wealthy spiritually um, by being blessed by God as being accepted in the Beloved. So, if we give ourselves a little bit of leeway to interpret things, we see that Tony Stark is fully human and Jesus is fully human, so there's that similarity there. Also, if we consider that Tony Stark's iron suit that makes him Iron Man, with all its abilities that it has, if we take that as an analogy of a divine nature, then essentially we have one person, the person of Tony Stark, with two natures. A human, his human body and human nature there, and divine, the suit. So, one person with two natures. Isn't this kind of like the model of of what Jesus is in essence, right? One person with two natures, Tony Stark, Iron Man? Well, we'll see about that. 
Is this really the best analogy? Can we really say then, uh, disregarding the fact that Tony Stark is, you know, has his vices as his as a billionaire? But when we talk about the essence of what he is, and if we take enough leeway to make a divine nature and a human nature, and he's obviously one person, is that enough to say, ding, 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 finally we have a winner? Uh, Jesus is kind of like Iron Man. Well, now let's answer the question, what makes Jesus different from Iron Man? So, Iron Man is a human in a powerful divine, quote-unquote, divine suit. But Jesus is the divine Son of God in a human suit? Well, there's a difference there, but wait, does that really describe what Jesus is as the incarnation of the Son? Did the Son really become incarnated, become enfleshed by taking on what we could say is a human suit? <laughs> I mean, okay, so Iron Man is Tony Stark in an iron suit, and the iron suit looks human. Um, you know, that becomes the suit of the superhero and part of the nature there. And I mean, if we just kind of reverse Iron Man so that, okay, you have a human in a divine suit, but Jesus is kind of the reverse of that divine in a human suit, then like if we ignore the fact that we are reversing things like that, couldn't we say at least we have something to compare the incarnation of the Son to? But can we accurately describe the incarnation of the Son as the divine Son, the divine Logos, in a human suit? <laughs> Is he just disguising his divinity by wrapping it in a human suit and walking around and talking in a human body? Just a body? I mean, let's ask this question. Doesn't a personal nature require a conscious intellect or mind or soul? Okay, well, let's look at Tony Stark's divine suit of Iron Man. Well, the suit of Tony Stark has a computer... But it is Tony Stark that drives it around. Tony Stark controls it like a man at a panel controlling it. Otherwise, it's not really, you know, it doesn't have its own intellect, mind, or soul. So could we ask the question, is the suit of Iron Man really a full, a complete nature? Or is it essentially a container that requires a driver? And is this really what it means <laughs> for the incarnation of the Son? Is he just God in a bod? Or is there more to the incarnation than just a bod, a corpse, or what would be considered a living uh, human animal or machine that requires the Son of God to drive it around, as it were, operate it? <laughs> Well, there was a guy in history who kind of thought of Jesus kind of like Iron Man, or as we said, the reverse. So, not exactly as a human driving around a super divine suit, but more like the divine Logos, God the Son, driving around a human suit. And who is this guy that we're talking about? Well, this is none other than Apollinaris the Younger. Ever heard of him? Well, if not, now you will. Now you know. Apollinaris the Younger lived from around 315 AD to 390. And so if you're familiar with that range, if you listened to the last two episodes as we talked about the Arian controversy and we talked about Alexander of Alexandria, but also Athanasius of Alexandria in the last episode, you would realize that there is some overlap there. So, Apollinaris the Elder would be Apollinaris the Younger's dad, and Apollinaris the Elder started to come up with an idea about Jesus that he was kind of like an inverse Iron Man. <laughs> and, naturally, Apollinaris the Younger, his son, appropriated those ideas for himself as he was taught them by his father. 
Now, let's not confuse Apollinaris with the Greek god Apollo. Perhaps that's where he got his Greek name from, but I don't know. We'll leave that to mystery, but we're not talking about a Greek god here when we talk about Apollinaris here. Now, Apollinaris the Younger was known to be an incredible scholar and philosopher. Yes, just as Arius was an incredible scholar and he had a philosophy about Jesus, he'd ask the questions. If he's called the Son, if he is generated from the Father, then by necessity there must be a time when he was not, and therefore there must be a time when God the Father was not a father. So Arius reasoned theology through his philosophy. And as Apollinaris the Younger reasoned things through his philosophy, we could see eventually how just philosophizing theology can eventually lead you into a bit of error. So Apollinaris the Younger was fascinated with Greek philosophy and Greek writings, much to the chagrin of his bishop Theodotus. Eventually, um, Apollinaris became a bishop in the city of Laodicea. Now, let's not make any accusations as the city of Laodicea is the last one mentioned in the churches of uh, Revelation and that, you know, that there would necessarily be a connection between the accusations against the church in Laodicea as being the church of the people and Apollinaris. I'm not going to make that accusation here. But Apollinaris became a bishop in Laodicea. And as the Arian controversy raged on, after the Council of Nicaea had declared what the truth would be, had condemned Arianism, but not for long, we had the Arian resurgence. Arianism, or at least semi-Arianism, ruled the day for decades. This is the time period that Apollinaris pretty much grew up in, so all he knew was the battle against Arianism. And so Apollinaris, eventually, as his intellect and philosophy drove him, he became a critic, a strong critic of Arianism, and he was a close defender and friend of Athanasius. And so Athanasius appreciated all the friends he would get. Now remember, as what was the date of the Council of Nicaea? It was 325 AD, and Apollinaris was born around 315. So, Apollinaris was not old enough to be either a deacon or a bishop, so he wasn't at the Council of Nicaea. But he grew up in a turbulent period, and all he knew, as I said, was the battle against the Arians for a while. And so, as someone who was only 10 at the Council of Nicaea, he did not really know much of how it was resolved. So, he was in the battle against Arianism with Athanasius. Now, Apollinaris, fascinated with Greek literature, actually rewrote the Old Testament in Greek poetry to help reading and memory. So, he was very prolific, he was very skilled with words, poetry, polemics. He wrote strongly against Arianism, although we don't really have his writings today. He wrote staunch polemics against Emperor Julian the Apostate. If you listen to the last episode about Athanasius's five exiles, you see that one of them was under Julian the Apostate, who really apostatized from semi-Arianism back to paganism. And so, if you remember, Julian the Apostate had his enemies among the semi-Arians, and then he allowed Athanasius and other exiled Nicene seen bishops to come back in thinking that he could just eat the popcorn and watch the two sides battle it out and so he could get the semi-Arians off his back for being pagan and yet the Nicene bishops including Athanasius were very critical also of Julian's teachings and lifestyle and so he banished them again. (laughs) 
And so Apollinaris was an ally in the fight both against Arianism and against paganism as practiced by Julian the Apostate. But somewhere along the line in his relentless campaign against these things, especially in his fierce opposition to Arianism, he eventually kind of took that a little too far. So while Athanasius was dealing with his exiles during the Arian dominance, Apollinaris the Younger was formulating a philosophy about Jesus Christ that made some theologians have to raise their eyebrows as they uh, read it. Apollinaris was so focused on the divinity of Jesus Christ that he started to sacrifice some of the humanity of Christ. Now, not much of Apollinaris's writings survive, but we could see his ideas through the writings that were against his ideas. Just like with Arius, we can piece together the Thalia by those who quoted it and responded to it. Now, as a philosopher, as someone who took Greek philosophy and basically interpreted Christian theology through it, Apollinaris believed that it was impossible for God to possess what he considered two perfect or complete natures. Now, since Apollinaris was strongly against the Arians, he was all about Jesus being fully God with the Father. However, he believed that the humanity of Jesus didn't have its own uh, nous, the Greek word nous, or what we would consider a rational soul. So, the human nature lacked this rational mental capability that was filled in by the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so, to Apollinaris, to say in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh would be to take the word flesh in as strictly and literal a sense as you can possibly take it, and only in that sense. So, the Word became flesh, or the word took on flesh means it took on <laughs> meat, the body, um, you know, just basically a living human corpse. <laughs> so the humanity of Christ, according to Apollinaris, was little more than a body in and of itself with the faculties of an animal or a brute beast, <laughs> as, as uh, his critics described. So, the eternal Logos of the Son of God basically filled in for the part that Christ's humanity lacked, this rational soul. So, although Apollinaris would consider the body of Christ alive, it didn't come equipped with human reasoning. Perhaps, you know, it came equipped with Corinthian leather, standard upholstery, and all the the doodads, and <laughs> all the technology, you know, if you take a, a, an analogy with a car. It came with all the equipment except for a rational soul. It didn't come with human reasoning, but why should it if we take the reasoning, the you know, what we would consider the noose or the rational soul that belonged to the Logos, the Son of God, why that could supplement the rational soul of the human nature of Christ. I mean, what's the problem with that? But think of this analogy, as I said, think of a car in which you turn on the ignition and the car is alive and running, but it still needs someone to sit in the driver's seat and operate the controls to make it walk and talk and show intelligence. <laughs> the Son of God had to be in the driver's seat of Jesus's body, otherwise it would be no better than a cow or something, some living beast creature that had no rationality, no rational soul. It might be like an engine running and rolling in neutral without the input of an intelligent pilot. And so, this is how Apollinaris effectually viewed the incarnation of the Son. It was basically Jesus taking on a human body that had enough to be operable as a human without the rational soul the intelligibility, the mind. <laughs>
And so, what about Apollinaris's critics? How do we get to know what Apollinaris believed? Of course, as the church determined that what Apollinaris was teaching about Jesus was not correct, um, there was the idea of banishing his writings, and so we don't have much in the way of his writings that survived. But we're going to get what Apollinaris taught by way of the theologians known as the Cappadocian Fathers. So, among the early church fathers at this time, you have what are called the Cappadocian Fathers. Now, why are they called the Cappadocian Fathers? Um, Well, they're from Cappadocia, which was at the time a central area in Turkey. And now were the Cappadocian fathers this large school of theologians, like, you know, say there was a school in Alexandria and you had all these bishops, all these students. No, the Cappadocian fathers are three people. (laughs) There is Basil of Caesarea, there is Gregory of Nyssa, and these two are brothers. And then, finally, the third, you have Gregory of Nazianzus, who was a friend of the brothers. Now, Gregory of Nazianzus kind of stands out on his own. He's considered Gregory the theologian. He was probably the greatest polemic writer of the three. So then let's look at what Gregory of Nazianzus had to say about Apollinaris' teachings about Jesus and the Incarnation. Gregory of Nazianzus criticized Apollinaris for focusing too much on philosophy, that he neglected the theological issues he was creating. Apollinaris philosophized that if the Son of God took on a human rational soul or mind in the Incarnation, that he wouldn't remain perfect and would therefore be corrupted. Now, if you remember, if you listen to the first episode in this series asking the question, is Jesus like Superman? We talked about the problems of docetism, and we mentioned some carryovers from docetism, kind of semi-docetism. We mentioned uh, some problems today that were docetic, such as the divine blood theory that some people believe that Jesus could not have had proper human blood, he had to have his own divine blood to prevent him from being corrupted by sin. Well, as Apollinaris rationed, Jesus could not have a rational soul, a human rational soul. He could not have taken that on as part of the human nature, else he would sin and be corrupted. So, just like the divine blood theory, in which the idea was that Jesus had to have divine blood, else he would inherit a sin nature, so, according to Paul and Aris, Jesus would be tainted if he took on a human rational soul. So, what really is the problem with this? Why can't the Son fill in or replace what would be the human rational soul with the divine Logos? Well, someone who isn't truly and fully human cannot be our substitute. Remember, we explained this in the question, is Jesus like Superman and against the Docetists, that you need a human to substitute for humans and even semi-Docetism. It doesn't matter if you say he's human. If you rob him of any component of humanity, then he cannot be our substitute. So, to be the substitute for humans requires one who has a full human nature. And so, just like with docetism or any form of semi-docetism, the same issue shows up with Apollinarianism. If Jesus lacked any component of a full human nature, he cannot be our Savior. He cannot save our whole being. At best, he could save whatever aspects of humanity he took on and whatever he left off is left unsaved. And so, I'm going to look at some quotes from Gregory of Nazianzus' writing against Apollinarianism from earlychurchtexts.com. I will put a link to this in the show notes. So, according to Gregory of Nazianzus, quote, For that which he, referring to the Son, 
has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. So Gregory of Nazianzus fully recognized the, the idea of substitutionary atonement. As Jesus is called Anthropos, there's a reason because it takes Anthropos to redeem Anthropos. Yes, he's called the Lamb of God by analogy to fulfill the fact that the lambs in the Old Testament were sacrificed as a cover for sins, but the final Lamb of God could not be an actual lamb, it had to be a human being. And according to Gregory, that which he has not assumed or taken on, he has not healed. So as Gregory reasoned against Apollinaris, that if Jesus did not take on a rational human soul or a human mind, if he did not take on that component, then his atoning death, his substitution, did not heal that in us. So, according to that reasoning, perhaps our body or our, you know, our soul or whatever you want to say, as Apollinaris divided humanity, the human nature into body, soul, and noose, spirit, or mind, if he only took on two of these three components, then only two of these three components were actually redeemed, the other is left in sin and condemned. <laughs> Continuing on with Gregory of Nazianzus, quote, But, says such a one, referring to Apollinaris, the Godhead took the place of the human intellect. How does this touch me, or how does this affect me? For Godhead joined to flesh alone is not man, nor to soul alone, nor to both apart from intellect, which is the most essential part of man. Keep then the whole man and mingle Godhead therewith, that you may benefit me in my completeness. So he's trying to say, if the incarnation were just taking on a body, that doesn't help me. If it's just taking on a soul, that doesn't help me. What about the mind? Isn't that the most important, as he will explain later? But then he says, we've got to join divinity with the whole of the human nature, and only that will be able to benefit me and redeem me. So, continuing on, quote, But it may be said, our mind is subject to condemnation. What then of our flesh? Is that not subject to condemnation? You must therefore either set aside the latter on account of sin, or admit the former on account of salvation. If he assumed the worse, that he might sanctify it by his incarnation, may he not assume the better, that it may be sanctified by his becoming man? So Gregory asks, wait a minute, if you say that he can't take on the human mind or intellect because that would make him corrupted, well, isn't the flesh corrupted? Like, you know, don't we exhibit problems in the flesh? Like, why is, how is that a rational solution? to the problem of corruption. And he says that, you know, if he can't take on the worst being the human intellect because it would be condemnation, then why can't we just ignore the body and say, why did he have to take that on for our salvation? I mean, it stands to reason that whatever he had to take on, why Jesus came, that's the whole point of what exactly is Jesus Christ? How do we define Jesus Christ? Well, we first have to answer the question, why did he come to figure out, well, then what did he have to be? And that's what Gregory of Nazianzus is asking the Apollinarians. Quote, For what need is there even to mention to those who know it the fact that everywhere in Scripture he is called man and the son of man? Unquote. So Gregory, as I pointed out, you know, as Jesus is called Anthropos, that means something. And so Gregory is asking, if he just took on like the beastly flesh of humanity without the intellectual capacity of humanity, the fullness, then why is there a need in the scriptures constantly to refer to Jesus as a man or the son of man or Anthropos if he's not fully human? 
This is the problem, really, of taking philosophy over theology. So to answer the question, who is Jesus, as I said, we must not start with philosophy. It must start with theology. It must start with theological necessity. We determine who Jesus is from the scriptures by understanding why he came. Now, I will mention as an aside that this series about superheroes is something that I have taught, uh, at least to a shorter degree, in adult Sunday school classes at the church that I attend. And as I have explained when I taught these lessons, Christianity is not so much concerned with using philosophy to understand how something is true. It is concerned with knowing what is true and why it must be true. So, instead of philosophizing about how to understand how something works, we are more concerned with what is true and why that is true. In other words, what is true is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, one person with two complete natures. And why this is true is substitutionary atonement. It is necessary for Jesus to be this way for him to atone for our sins. Now, understanding how this works according to metaphysics is not really our concern in theology. We don't have to grasp how this works to be a true theologian. We just have to declare what is true and why this truth is necessary. If we are led first by philosophy, we can stumble into error like Apollinaris did. Philosophy might tempt us to ask the question, what would God need to take on to walk among us on the earth? But theology would compel us to ask the question, what would God need to take on to be our substitute? And that is the question with which Christianity is concerned. And the question of the why of the Incarnation actually helps us to know the what of the Incarnation. We know what Jesus is because we know why he came. And that's really what I want us all to understand. It's not what did Jesus have to be to walk on the earth. It's what did Jesus have to be to complete the divine mission of substitutionary atonement. I dare say fundamentalist evangelical Christians can struggle with wrong think about Christ. We are definitely not immune. I mean, I remember reading about Apollinarianism years ago, and before I saw the, the, what the problems were, what the criticism were, I, ha I had to think, you know, what really is that bad about it? Why is this wrong? Because I was thinking through the philosophy of what is enough to get him walking on the earth. And then I really had to think, well, really, what is enough to get him to be our substitute? Now, there are those even good, godly apologists among Christianity who can struggle with this idea of philosophy before theology. Now, I want to mention a name, and I hope you won't be offended, because I dare say that we are all very much benefited by having this apologist arguing against atheists and explaining why uh, God exists. And this name is William Lane Craig. So, William Lane Craig, Dr. Craig, is definitely a, an apologist driven by philosophy. As, if, as you have read his works, his philosophy is strong in his ideas of Molinism. Now, I know perhaps maybe some of my listeners might be Molinists. Uh, I'm not trying to criticize Molinism right now, but I believe that Molinism is primarily philosophy. It is not theologically driven. It is uh, philosophy determining theology. 
And he makes a lot of good philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Those are definitely great. We benefit from those. I have extreme respect for how prolific and how willing uh, Dr. Craig is to continue to debate and argue and make good arguments for the existence of God. And he has definitely studied the Bible. He's, you know, his, his reasonable faith, he has a lot of good answers for things. But his understanding of anthropology and the human will are driven primarily by philosophy, and that's going to bring us to what he himself admittedly calls his view of Neo-Apollinarianism. And now I have a link to this that I will put in the show notes, and I'm going to quote from an article, not from his critics, but from his own website called reasonablefaith.org. The link for this article will be in the show notes, and he's asked the question, he's answering the question in a dialogue about what he calls his neo-Apollinarian views. So, he made three points, and point number two is especially poignant. Point number two in the article, according to Dr. Craig, quote, The soul of the human nature of Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the Logos. The human nature of Christ is composed of the Logos and a human body, unquote. So, according to Dr. Craig, basically the soul of the Logos, either it changed into or it just grew enough attributes that it would essentially be, it would replace or be the soul of the humanity. Like, you know, if, if we have a soul, the Logos was the soul of Jesus. And so, that's, that's kind of Apollinarian, but here, Dr. Craig also says, quote, Here I think Apollinarius has pointed the route that we could take, namely, you say that there is a common constituent which is shared by the human nature and the divine nature. That would be the person. The soul of the human nature is the person of the second person of the Trinity. By having this common constituent, there is overlap, so to speak, between the divine and the human natures, unquote. So, he's trying to maintain an orthodox understanding of the incarnation. Now, he does, in the article, say that he agrees with Chalcedon, which is, you know, we're going to get into the creed of Chalcedon and another superhero in a later episode, but Dr. Craig is claiming that he does believe in one person with two natures. It's just that his definition of person and nature are different from what is understood by Chalcedonian Christianity today, Orthodox Christianity. So, he believes that the soul component, the spirit, the immaterial part of the nature itself is the person. And so, he tries to take what is kind of Apollinarian-ish, he calls it Neo-Apollinarian, but he claims that this agrees with Chalcedon later, that Jesus is fully divine and fully human, one person with two natures, but he just defines nature and person differently. So, he believes that the soul or the spirit, the immaterial component, is the person. And so, that fills in where the immaterial component of the human would be, but then we still have to ask the question, well, wouldn't the immaterial component of God, the, the Son, be different from the immaterial component of humans? Are we just saying that you can swap one for the other, and that would be sufficient, and that would truly make Jesus fully human when he has to replace the soul of the human nature with the Logos? How does that make him subject to temptation if it's basically God in a bod, God operating a human nature like Tony Stark operates the Iron Man suit? 
So, I mean, in deference to Dr. Craig, I see his reasoning here. He's trying to be orthodox, but because of his philosophy, like Apollinaris, now Apollinaris reasoned differently. He reasoned that the sun couldn't take on human reasoning or a human mind because that would corrupt him. That's not what Dr. Craig is reasoning with his neo-Apollinarianism, but he's reasoning based on essence that the spirit, the soul, the immaterial component of humanity is the person, not just part of the nature. So, because he doesn't have a correct understanding of who versus what, he's really making part of the what, the who, <laughs> then he's trying to say that he's orthodox while accepting God and Abad Christology. But, as Gregory of Nazianzus argues, you know, is he really man if all he took on of man was what would be considered the brute beast <laughs> without the human mind? He said, what is not assumed is not healed. Now, if Jesus, if the Son had to assume a human body to heal our body, then why didn't he have to assume the human immaterial component to heal that? You see, Dr. Craig, he's, he's making a worthy attempt here, but, you know, Jesus didn't just replace the human soul in the incarnation, else he would not assume it to heal it. And now, finally, what is the problem with Apollinarianism? Well, essentially, and in the case of Dr. Craig, I'm not going to consign him to condemnation in any way here. I just think he's wandering through his philosophy and letting his philosophy interpret his theology. So, he has the error there, but I'm not willing to say that he's out of the kingdom here. But the problem fundamentally with Apollinarianism, as with any other error about who Jesus is, is that it essentially, whether directly or indirectly, denies substitutionary atonement. So let's look at some scripture for that. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 6 through 9 says, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So what is this saying? And now I will say that I did an episode... Um, about a year ago, that made the case that Hebrews chapter 1 is about the deity of Jesus Christ, and then Hebrews chapter 2 is about the humanity of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. So, what's the point of this passage? Hebrews 2.6 quotes from the Psalms asking, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, which becomes a title of Christ, that thou God visitest him. And verse 7 says, Thou made him a little lower than the angels. So, 7 is a reference to what man is. By description, he's made a little lower than the angels. And then verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. So this is essentially then saying, Jesus is man. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's truly human. He was made man. And so that means, really, that he took on all that there is to humanity, which would include the rational soul or the immaterial part or the mind, what have you, everything that pertains to humanity. So, verse 6 references man, anthropos in the Greek. Verse 7 describes man as made a little lower than the angels. Verse 9 describes Jesus as made a little lower than the angels. So, this is clearly a reference to the fact that Jesus was made human. He was made anthropos, and therefore he was fully human. He can be called anthropos, not semi-anthropos, mind you. Not anthropos by somehow having a component replaced. And now Hebrews 2.17, finally, it says, 
wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And the next verse actually mentions that via this, he can suffer and be tempted. (laughs) And what is that? That is a function of the mind. So are you just saying that taking on a body then allows you to be tempted? No, he had to take on the fullness of humanity to suffer and be tempted so that he could succor them who are tempted. And verse 17, it says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. So it didn't mean that he took on additional things that would be enough to make him human. He took on the full human nature separately in addition to the divine nature. So that he's one person with two natures. And no, the person is not the immaterial spiritual component. The person is who the spiritual immaterial component along with flesh is the what. There's a difference between who and what, and the who is not itself a what, okay? And so, therefore, with that orthodox understanding, we could see why he had to take on the whole human nature and be fully human as well as fully divine, including the human rational mind, so that he could be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them another under the law, according to Galatians 4, 4 through 5. He had to be tempted as a human with the human mental capacities and the human spirit and the human body all of it together, so that he can make reconciliation for the sins of the people, and so that he could suffer being tempted, as Gregory of Nazianzus said, what is not assumed is not healed. So he had to assume it to heal it. He didn't replace it to heal it. That doesn't work. He had to take it on to heal it. And that is what reconciliation is by the reconciling of Jesus, the Son, taking on all of humanity, therefore to redeem the whole of the human nature. And that is substitutionary atonement, and that is why Apollinarianism fails to uphold substitutionary atonement. And ultimately, Apollinarianism, along with Arianism, was condemned at the Council of Constantinople in 381, which reaffirmed Nicaea and expanded the language to cover the idea that the Son is fully human and fully divine, and the idea that the Holy Spirit exists and proceeds from the Father. And so you have the Trinity in the Council of Constantinople in 381. You have both Arianism and Apollinarianism condemned there. And so, as we Christians consider orthodox teaching and as we make theology, not philosophy, the driver of truth, and as substitutionary atonement is always before our eyes, if we ask the question, is Jesus like Iron Man or is Jesus like the Logos driving a human body, a human suit, we should be able to answer the question with a big fat no. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 